Hello and welcome to Teaching Notes, the podcast of the Music Teachers Association. My name is Patrick Johns. I'm a professional trombonist, a radio producer, and of course, just like you, a music teacher. In these monthly podcasts, we're going to try to bring us all closer together by sharing good practice, offering advice, and hearing from some of the big players in the wider world of music education. In this third episode, we'll hear from the Chief Executive of the London Music Fund, Chrissy Kinsella, about an exciting new collaboration between the fund and YouTube. Plus, Angus Merrion gives us an instant lesson plan for when you've been booted out of your department. But we're going to start by meeting one of us and picking up some handy tips. It's that time of year, once again, when Key Stage 4 and 5 coursework deadlines are fast approaching. Now, many of our students will, I'm sure, have finished or very nearly finished their coursework and will be now focusing on revision and exam preparation and so on. But let's face it, many students will now be approaching full panic mode as deadlines rush up to meet them. And it can be quite a pain, of course, for us as well. So how can we best help them at this stage in the year with their compositions? What are the absolute key points, the fundamentals that should be there, and what should we be encouraging students to avoid? Well, who better to ask than Dr Stephen Berryman? He's the Director of Music at the City of London School for Girls, and he's also worked as an examiner at both GCSE and A-Level, amongst many, many other things. And crucially, Stephen himself is a very active composer. I began by asking him what he considered the most important element of students' compositions at this busy time of year. So this time of year when teachers are getting close to finishing coursework, everyone gets quite stressed, everyone gets quite worried, they've got students who haven't got things finished, they've got lots more to do, and I always think my biggest advice is just make sure you don't lose sight of the structure. Make sure you look at the students' work and think, okay, let's just talk about what is the overall structure of this, what is the form, what's left to do, and often when you start to do that, when you start to map out the structure of your composition, you realise, do you know what, I don't have much left to do. I have to make sure I have maybe the return of the opening material, maybe I need to think about my contrasting section, but once you map out this structure, you realise there's not that much left to complete and it starts to reduce the panic. But make sure whatever happens, you don't lose sight of the bigger picture and you know what is the structure of my composition, what's left to do. Do you think we sometimes make things too complicated for ourselves as teachers? I think we do when we're teaching composition because we want the best from every student so maybe sometimes we might be a little bit too ambitious maybe we have someone in the class who plays the cello they're really good so maybe we'll set them a really complicated challenge such as write a uh, a suite for cello thinking that we're doing the right thing for our students when actually what we need to do is just think keep it controlled set them challenges that aren't too open-ended challenges that aren't too complicated in terms of the compositional demand perhaps expecting them to use highly sophisticated harmonic language or perhaps expecting them to use highly sophisticated instrumental techniques because perhaps we're thinking this will be really good for this student let's give them a really complicated thing because they're very able but what it might do is just slow their progress it might confuse them when really just we need to rein in our ambitions and remind ourselves that we just need to achieve perhaps around four minutes of music for two compositions so just keep ourselves controlled and don't be too ambitious with the challenges we set. Sometimes I wonder if we focus on the decoration before we've actually made a good cake. I completely agree. And actually, the fundamental thing for our composition is to have a solid structure. And I think that has always been my priority when teaching composition. What is the structure going to be? What is the shape of this composition? What is the bigger picture? And so I make sure my cake has really good ingredients. 
it has really good flour I've got my sugar I've got my butter you know choosing my resources well what instruments am I going to use what is the harmonic language of this composition I might need to deploy but not losing sight of that with all the filigree and the gestural detail obviously I think dynamics articulation are really important the sonorities and colors we need to keep in mind as we're composing right from the beginning but we don't want to lose sight of that bigger picture because it could really lead to a lot of inertia if we get bogged down in the detail too early on in the process. What are the most common problems that you've experienced with students' compositions? I think the most common problems for me are students not writing idiomatically. I think a lot of students choose resources but they don't really embrace the potential of resources fully. So perhaps if they choose to write for the piano, are they writing in a way that only the piano could play? Or could I put this on a different instrument? And if we are able to have that conversation, saying perhaps a right hand could be on the trombone. If we're able to ask these questions, then there's a problem because undeniably your writing in a good composition should be for the instrument you say it's for. And that means, have I really utilised the best possible ways that that instrument could play? Have I made use of certain figurations, certain gestures, certain techniques that only this instrument can do. And if I'm not doing that, then that is a a problem I think that they should address. I suppose another thing really is, have I deployed the best textures? I think a lot of students have the aspiration of writing homophony when really they're writing counterpoint. And I think having a real strong awareness of foreground, middle ground, background, really asking myself in this phrase, in this section, which is the most important line? Which line do I need to come over as a melody? And often I think students write accompaniments and melodies that are so similar that we have this oral conflict. We can't quite tell where we should put our attention as the listener. And so I think students really need to think carefully when they have a multi-layered piece, perhaps a solo instrument and piano, Which instrument should I be listening to in this particular phrase, this particular section? Does my piano part conflict? Is the piano writing occupying the same pitch space as the solo instrument? Or have I given them sufficient differentiation so the ears really are listening to the melodic line in the flute, for example? Or is the piano part competing too often? Um, Am I writing chords in the piano that are perhaps too low and too muddy? Is that detracting from the melodic line in my solo instrument? So just really thinking about the texture from the point of a listener. And are the melodic ideas or gestures or any material coming over the way that I want it to? Or is it all in competition? And is it all a bit muddy? And is it all a bit unclear? And I found sometimes, particularly with piano writing, there's inconsistency. So you might have two bars of block, semi-brief chords, followed by two bars of single-line melody, followed by two bars rest. And it doesn't seem, with piano writing particularly, for non-pianists, it doesn't seem to be, um, well, there does seem to be a bit of an issue with that. You know, I agree. And I think that comes down to this need to write every bar being different, when actually we need to be brave. When we come up with an accompaniment pattern we really like, we stick with it. And we stick with it for many bars, you know, maybe 20, 30 seconds of the same accompaniment pattern, whilst the notes themselves might alter to reflect the harmony. There needs to be a sense that this pattern is but the atmosphere for my solo part or my other layers to rest upon, to glide over. If the accompaniment is changing too often, I'm degrading any sense of atmosphere, any sense of consistent character, because my piano part is too changeable. Whilst that might be necessitated by the character I'm aspiring for, so if I do want something that sounds jumbled and muddled, then having lots of changes in my accompaniment would be ideal. But typically, students need to create a stable, consistent accompaniment pattern. So I suggest be brave to keep it the same, be brave to keep the shapes the same, 
for several bars, if not a whole section, just so the listener can adjust to your character and atmosphere and give them time to really embrace it and give space for the solo to glide on top or just take priority in the texture. Thank you. And finally, with coursework deadlines looming now weeks away rather than months to months away, do you have one invaluable top tip, the one thing you could say to music teachers, just do this and it'll be all right? If you're handing a score in or you're handing a lead sheet in, just make sure it looks neat. Just make sure it's tidy. That is the priority. The examiner or moderator is going to be looking at that as the way to access your composition. So does that look tidy, immaculate and clear? Ask yourself, am I writing for the instruments I've chosen well? Are my textures not muddy? Are they clear who's important and what is background, what's middle ground? And are my harmonic materials interesting or have I been safe and used really boring chords? They're the three things I think often um, are missing from the best compositions. Many thanks to Dr Stephen Berryman, Director of Music at the City of London School for Girls. And if you'd like to find out more about Stephen's work, do visit his website, stephen-berryman.com. That's Stephen with a V. Where amongst lots of other great material, you can find some videos in which Stephen offers excellent compositional advice at GCSE level. And if you would like to feature in this podcast to share your work in your own department or perhaps some teaching techniques that have worked well for you, then please do drop me a line, media at musicteachers.org. Okay, picture the scene. You've got your next year seven lesson beautifully planned. All the instruments are finally repaired and you're ready to go. Then you get that email from SLT telling you that as they need the music rooms for something else, you'll have to take your classes into a maths room. What do we do? We have no instruments, no computers, and potentially even no speakers. And the lesson starts in two hours' time. Well, bring on pencil case music. Over to Angus Merrion. This is an attempt to explain pencil case music, which is a project I've developed for students around the stage of year seven. It could equally be used with slightly older or slightly younger students, depending on the school. It's a way of developing awareness of pulse, of cross rhythms, of ostinati, texture and timbre through improvising a short piece in groups of four or five. But they don't need any instruments, all they need is the contents of their pencil cases. One way that I do this is I get them to recap a little bit of prior learning, which in the case of some of my students would have been something about pulse and rhythm as part of an overview of the building blocks of music, maybe some call and response just to get them going, some clapping, a little bit of singing and an understanding that the best call and response relies on a really clear pulse being established and everyone is properly on board with it and that when one attempts to clap, in the manner of applause, i.e. with no pulse, it's very, very difficult for the pupils to clap it back. You can try this initially in a whole class format. So you'd split the class into groups of, say, four or five, and you number them off, give each group a number, so groups one to five, and you get group one to establish a pulse any way they like. It could be clapping, it could be clicking, it could be tapping something they can find around them, and they establish the pulse. Every subsequent group is given a different rhythm by the teacher initially for speed, and then the idea being is that you can understand these as ostinati. They have to establish them, maintain them, make sure they stick with the pulse, but each one is different and they have to listen. Sometimes I get the students to close their eyes while they're clapping or clicking or making their various noises to check that they are with the pulse and to see if they can hear each other's rhythms really clearly. And then as the director of this particular piece, I would go to a particular group and I would encourage them to make their noises quieter and quieter until they stop and then until such a point as the piece ends. 
So you would then sum up and establish what you'd done thus far. Then each pupil would find five interesting things that make a noise in their pencil case. Now, most people have got a wide variety of different things in their pencil cases, from scissors to rulers to the kind of clicky bits on the tops of pens. And certainly with a ruler, for example, on the top of a piano or on a bookcase or a hard object, you can make some fantastic waggly noises when you sort of strum the end of it in the manner of a guitar string. And depending on the length of the ruler, you can make some really quite interesting noises. And certainly younger pupils tend to find this quite engaging. You ask them then in their books to list the instruments in inverted commas because the idea being is that they should realise that everything can act as an instrument and it can make a sound and a description of how they're used and also the sound that's created so they're thinking about timbre of really of anything from whether it's a glue stick to a pencil to a pen or a ruler so they're thinking about the timbre there then as part of this you would then always establish that rhythm and pulse are two deeply interconnected things but also very different and that rhythm can only really stem from a proper understanding and an awareness of pulse and that the success in this performing task will come from proper listening, interaction amongst the group and also a sense of structure. How are they going to build up a piece? Do they all start together? fortissimo and then gradually fade away or do they start quietly with just the pulse take it in turns to add and adapt and subtly vary a rhythm until they end up with a piece of music which has four or five or even six different interconnected layers which all work together that's certainly where you're aiming at not all of them will achieve that straight away but with enough time then they certainly can and you can bring in different facets of dynamics and the variety of sounds that each instrument can achieve as we've discussed. About 10-15 minutes or so is plenty enough time for them to plan and prepare this. You then hear each group in turn, get some positive feedback, what went well, what next, from peers. And then as a plenary, you would sum up the learning, the keywords and phrases you've used, get the pupils to provide definitions, and also how they perceive repetition, structure and contrast to be applicable in this particular context. Homework could include some self-evaluation, uh, perhaps a description of the task in their own words, rather than just writing down something that one's put on the board, their own sense of what went well in their own piece and what they could have improved given a bit more time, something they enjoyed about it. It's always useful to find out from students what they liked about a task that we set and something that they'd have liked a little bit longer to work on. That was Angus Merrion, Director of Music at the Tiffin Girls School, with a guide to pencil case music, a potentially life-saving lesson. In a few moments, I'll be speaking to Chrissy Kinsella from the London Music Fund about an exciting new project of theirs. But first, just a quick reminder of a huge music education event that's happening very, very soon. On Wednesday the 4th and Thursday the 5th of March, the Music and Drama Education Expo takes place at Olympia, London, opening at 9 o'clock each morning. It's free and features 60 CPD sessions and over 140 exhibitors from every corner of music education, including, naturally, the Music Teachers Association. And in fact, the MTA will have a series of mini CPD sessions at our stand. That's stand F7. So do come and say hi. Full information is at musicanddramaeducationexpo.co.uk and I'll have a full report from the Expo in the April edition of Teaching Notes. And it will be great to hear about other music education events taking place where you are, all over the country. There's so much going on, and it would be great to be able to share that with listeners. If you're putting on some regional CPD collaborative coursework moderation sessions or something similar, and you'd like to share it with colleagues, please do let me know by emailing me, Patrick Johns. That's media at musicteachers.org. Now on to the final interview. 
The London Music Fund is a charity that's been doing outstanding work for young musicians in the capital for nearly a decade, allowing young people with a flair for music to develop their talents. They've just launched a new project in collaboration with YouTube entitled Amplify London. I asked the CEO, Chrissy Kinsella, about the charity and about this new programme. Hi Chrissy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. For those who don't know, tell us what the London Music Fund is. The London Music Fund is an independent charity with the Mayor of London as our patron and we were set up in 2011 to address specific gaps in music education provision across the city. We have two programmes that we currently run. One is a scholarship programme for children from low-income families who have had some tuition through the first access programmes in schools but who can't afford to continue learning at that point. And the other is a partnership programme which is in collaboration with music hubs, schools and professional arts organisations across the city addressing specific gaps in provision within local areas. That sounds wonderful. And you've just launched a new project with YouTube Music. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's called Amplify London and it's a brand new two-year pilot programme that we're running in collaboration with YouTube Music and with Sound Connections, the London music education charity. And it came about through discussions that we were having a few years ago about how to address specific gaps in music education that we weren't currently looking at. And we realised that a lot of the programmes we're currently funding are in the very traditional music education sphere. And we realised that there are a huge amount of young people coming through the system who aren't necessarily learning in traditional ways, who are learning music technology and music production. And alongside that, we realised there are a number of smaller grassroots projects in London that don't get a huge amount of support. We wanted to see what we could do to develop our work in that area. Could you tell me how YouTube came to be involved with this project? Yes, we were lucky enough to start conversations with the team at YouTube Music last summer and they really, really got what we were trying to do from day one. They understood the concept and they understood the need and they've given us a substantial amount of support We launched this new fund on Monday this week and we're going to be funding 10 projects over the next two years, five this spring and five in 2021. And small grassroots organisations can apply to us for up to £6,000 per project. What kind of grassroots projects are we talking about? Could you give us an example? Yeah, we've done quite a lot of research in this area and had a look at the kind of projects that we'd like to support. And there's a number of small music studios, youth clubs, community groups working within very specific local areas, often working with young people at risk, lots of young people in challenging circumstances. And it could be a half-term course, it could be a songwriting course over a number of weekends, it could be a summer school, uh, it could be a music production course, anything like that that's really working with young people who are not in not currently working through the formal school setting. And then I guess everything is uploaded to YouTube, that's the idea of their involvement? Yeah, I think it remains to be seen how it will develop over the next two years, but we're all very open to see what kind of platforms we're going to use, how the projects will develop. It will depend entirely on the kind of projects that we select for the end funding. But YouTube are really supportive and really want to help with mentors and ambassadors and networking. And we're just really, really excited about this new development for our work. Does this tie in with schools at all? I mean, should teachers be looking to put students forward for this or should they be letting local music projects that they already know about know about your project? We really want to get schools on board with this and although they can't actually 
actually apply for this particular funding, we really want to reach those projects and those local grassroots organisations within the, the London boroughs. And I think there will be a number of teachers and a number of schools who will know the kind of projects that young people within their area are working with, and it would be great if they could put us in touch. Could you tell us how we as music teachers can support this project or get our young people involved? I know that there's a huge amount of work that music teachers are doing across the UK in supporting young musicians from all backgrounds and I'm absolutely certain that teachers know of these kind of projects and they know the kinds of young people who would really benefit from these kind of projects and we will continue uh, to support schools and music hubs through our core work, our scholarships and partnership programme but I really hope that schools will be able to signpost us to organisations and also signpost small organisations to us who would really benefit from this funding. So how should teachers in London schools, and apologies that it is just for London at the moment, (laughs) but uh, how should teachers in London schools get in touch and put their young people forward? You can visit our website which is londonmusicfund.org or you can email us at amplifyldn at londonmusicfund.org. Great, Chrissy, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Chrissy Kinsella there, and it'll be great to see how that project develops. And that's it for another edition of Teaching Notes, the Music Teachers Association's podcast. Thank you for listening, and if you're not already a member of the MTA, please do consider joining. Full information about the MTA is available at musicteachers.org or by emailing us, media at musicteachers.org. Membership costs just over £60 a year, and for that you get loads. The MTA magazine Ensemble, which is full of interviews, advice, and something I find very useful, resources. And let's not forget the annual conference, which this year takes place on Friday the 15th and Saturday the 16th of May at St Paul's School Barnes, southwest London. It'll feature two dozen practical sessions, talks, and CPD, with speakers such as Howard Goodall, Chris Fish, and Dan Francis. Plus there's the essential black tie dinner on the Saturday night. You've got until the 13th of March to get your early bird tickets, so do visit musicteachers.org to find out more. If you'd like to be featured in this podcast, then please do email me, Patrick Johns, media at musicteachers.org. Thank you for listening to Teaching Notes, the Music Teachers Association's podcast, and be sure to catch the next edition next month. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.